Uh, My name is Bill, lead pastor here at Bethel Christian Church, uh, and we are continuing our our story, our study into the story of Jesus found in the Gospel of Mark. And this is the shortest gospel that we have, but it's also the most compacted, the most intense. And we're going to be in chapter 6, going to be looking at boxing Jesus, uh, which uh, there's one meaning of the word here, but it's actually the other meaning as well. I think when, uh, when we're looking at uh, how well do you know somebody, um, you can know somebody really, really well. And then you're talking about, you know, say, say you meet um, somebody five, ten years later and you're a mutual friend uh, of this person. They have a completely different relationship. They, they knew your friend at a different season of life or a different stage, uh, a different circumstance. And, and they know this person, but they're, they're, you don't recognize them. Because you know them. You're the one that had these experiences together. You're the one that, that walked this out in relationship. So you should be able to say who this person is, who they aren't. In, in World War I, in uh, war-ravaged Europe, uh, there was a small village. Um, and there was an Austrian pastor uh, who was up and uh, working late. And uh, the, the war, uh, the front lines were, were pretty fixed. And there, there were soldiers back and forth. And there was a knock at the door. And there was this, this grubby soldier. Uh, I'd been in the trenches, probably had trench foot, smelled like, like the devil. I mean, just this just haggard looking person. And he said, and he asked um, in, in a really faint uh, light German accent. Excuse me, sir. I, I'm, I'm passing by. Um, I noticed that there's a piano in the church. Would I be able to play? And he's like, oh, man, I'm going to have to clean the piano. We've got service the next day. And, and he's really busy. He says, okay, all right, just play quietly um, just for 10 minutes. And he goes in the other room. And he hears his most beautiful piano, just, just godlike piano music coming from the other room. And he walks in there, and this person's just lost in music. And as he's uh, leaving, um, the pastor asked his name, and he said, I'm um, Private Felix Mendelssohn. Um, and the pastor later wrote, the master was at the door. And I couldn't recognize him because he was too familiar. So what we're going to be looking at in Mark chapter 6. That familiarity breeds contempt. Uh, this, what this um, phrase means, um, it, it's basically when you're so close to a situation, when you're so close to someone, not only do you take them for granted... But you take all the good things for granted, and it's all the differences that start to irritate and, 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 and rub the corners off, and it becomes difficult. Familiarity breeds contempt. You can extend a lot of grace to a stranger, but somebody who knows better, family member? Jesus had the same issue. Last week, we looked at uh, this aspect of faith, of what is healing faith, what is saving faith, how does this work? And we had these two stories that were wound up together with this woman who misunderstood prophecy in the Bible and everything, but her faith was the son of righteousness has healing in his wings, and the translation was the corner of the robe, and so she said, this is the one, I'm going to activate my faith. And Jesus said, your your faith has saved you, but Jesus, or healed you, Jesus is the one that healed. Um, the, The girl who had died... It wasn't an issue of faith for her at all. Jesus saved. And along the way, he wanted to strengthen the faith of her distraught father. 
And so there was this intense ministry time. Just, just previous to that, uh, Jesus took them to the surface of the moon, in the most pagan place, the mo- this, this demon-afflicted person in the middle of a graveyard. And, and so there's these intense experiences that are happening in ministry. The kingdom is going out. Lives are being changed. Uh, people see what God's rule looks like in their lives, in their bodies, in their relationships. And, and this, this fever is starting to catch on. Now, what Jesus was doing was he was fulfilling the role of this itinerant uh, rabbi teacher. And this was common during the day, that you would have a rabbi, and the best and the brightest of all the students that made their way up through Hebrew school, they would get to follow the rabbi. It's like an apprenticeship, like, like a tradesman, where you'd be an apprentice, then I guess you'd be a journeyman rabbi. Um, but you would follow your master around, and where he slept, you slept, what he ate, you ate, what, what he taught, you studied, uh, so that you could teach later. And that's what these disciples were doing with Jesus. So he started from a hometown. We saw in the beginning of the gospel, he moves to a regional capital, Capernaum, announces the ministry of God. The spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim release to the captive, sight to the blind. Good news, favorable year of the Lord. And now we see what this looks like in action and in deed and in changed lives and in reaction both ways. Praise God he's here to, no, you can't be God because you're not the way I think you should be. And so all these people are having these reactions, and now it comes full circle where Jesus returns to his hometown after all of these accolades, after all of this Messiah buzz, after these noteworthy miracles have happened. It's interesting, even the people that most opposed Jesus didn't have a problem with faith. The Pharisees knew he was going to heal on the Sabbath, and they're going to get him. Okay? So everybody had their own take on, on who he was, and we're going to see even closer to home, they, they were pretty set in who Jesus could and couldn't be. Mark chapter 6, starting with verse 1. Jesus left there, where he healed Jairus' daughter, and went to his hometown, or yeah, there's some other stuff anyway. Jesus left there and went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't even his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Okay, Nazareth. Uh, we're familiar with Nazareth because of the Bible and, and being the, uh, the hometown where, where Jesus was raised. And uh, other than that, we know very, very little. They've dug up what they thought is most likely Nazareth, Nazareth, and it was such a backwater, it didn't even make any of the maps back in the old day. I mean, it wasn't on, on um, Magellan or GPS or anything. I mean, it's off the beaten path. Nazareth at its heyday was a sprawling megalopolis of about 500 people. Um, how many people grew up in a town of about a thousand or less people? Anyone? Anyone? Three, two people? Now, I've lived in cities of six and a half million. I've lived in cities of 200 people. I guess that's not a city, is it? Village? Um, where I went to high school, I had 52 people in the town. And, and so that was kind of a Nazareth experience. You couldn't get away with anything in Bridgeport, California as a high school student because your parents knew before the police did. Everybody knew everybody's business. I mean, you just, I, it was just confessional. I just walk home and go, well, you already heard everything, so I, where would you like me to begin? 
everybody knew everybody's business, right? Because you grew up together. You grew up with kids and with, you were parented. It takes a village. That was small town living, small town life. That was absolutely the case in Nazareth. All the more so with a very insular Jewish culture that families knew everything about every family business, much less here in a small town. And so Jesus was a local celebrity. He, you know, local boy makes good. He'd gone out on this amazing world tour, selling out stadiums and rock star. He comes back, not, not showboating, not grandstanding. We, it doesn't say much about um, his friendships or anything until the Sabbath. And he's teaching, as was his custom. Why? Because he came to preach the gospel, the good news. He came to set people free. It wasn't enough just that they grew up with him or knew him. So he returns to his hometown and there's suspicion and there's mistrust because they all know who Jesus is. They don't know who Jesus is in the big city. This flash in the pan, the, the, the blind beggar that got healed, the man with a withered hand, they don't know who Jesus is, but we do. And and so there's this sense of we have the true understanding of who he can and can't be. And it's offensive that Jesus seems to be buying his own PR material. Who is he to claim these things? Who is he to teach in this way? Where did he get this authority? The people were amazed elsewhere that Jesus taught with authority, not like their leaders. They recognized there was a difference. There's, There's some God in this person. This guy resembles the one he's talking about. He's not phoning it in. And so they recognized that. But in his hometown... They knew there's nowhere he could have gotten this authority. And I know Jesus. The guy can't play soccer. I could always juke him. We'd always make him play goalie so we could score on him. Um, he always snorted when he laughed. We always knew Jesus was, you know, in town because we could hear him snorting. Um, yeah, yeah, Jesus is a good guy, stand-up neighbor. Yeah, he, I remember he helped me find my, my donkey when it got out. and uh, he, he was just always there. Uh, man, he made some killer uh, marmalade for the holidays and would bring it by with his mom. I mean, there's just all these, all these, remember when he short-sheeted Jesus' bed? Ah, man, payback. Yeah, it was fun. Everybody has their own story, their own take, their own experience of Jesus. And guess what? It's absolutely true. It's absolutely 100% true. And you know, I'm just making stuff up, but maybe Jesus wasn't that great of a soccer player. Maybe he made a killer, you know, salsa or marmalade or something. There's all these idiosyncrasies, experiences, jokes, crazy stuff happening. Um, And that's their understanding in full of who Jesus is. Notice in this gospel, there's this strange tension that has been developing all along. And and we've been throwing the Pharisees under the bus, under the chariot. I I don't know what you do back then. Uh, Because it's easy to pick on them. Because Jesus did. But this tension that's been increasing through the gospel of Mark is this. Those who are most comfortable in church are less and less comfortable with Jesus. And those who are least comfortable in church are more and more comfortable with Jesus. Okay, it's switching it around. And so we see this with the Pharisees. They've arrived. They belong. They are the church, so to speak. They call the shots. They're the standard. And, and so there's this, um, this expectation of, of we've arrived. And so when Jesus starts saying, no, no, it's not about you. It's about God. You must be servant of all. Uh, you must fade into the word work. You must decrease. They didn't like that. And when Jesus was saying, God loves you, there is hope for you. It's not based on your track record or your performance, but his love. People love that because it wasn't condemnation. It wasn't guilt. It wasn't you messed up again. Try harder. Be like me. But it was this is the life that you were created to live. And there's liberty in Christ. 
And so this tension's been increasing with the, we see the, the Pharisees getting upset, then accusations. Why do the disciples of John do this and your disciples don't? And then they were looking for a reason to accuse him. And then the last we heard with the, with the Pharisees was they, they plotted with the Nazi corroborators, the Herodians, to kill Jesus. And so we see this tension where they got more and more where they, they could not have this kind of Messiah and they had to kill him. Uh, and then we have this other tension with those who know and love him most. And this has been increasing. Um, we, we saw a couple of weeks ago that Mary, okay, I, a.k.a. the Virgin Mary, you know, Virgin Mary, ah, um, she thought her son had gone crazy and, and, and rounded up the kids and we got to go get your big brother. He's, he's, he's out of hand now. We've got to apprehend him, subdue him, and deprogram him from this cult or whatever. And so this tension's starting to grow now, and now it comes full circle here. Where did he get this teaching? What kind of miracles are these? We don't recognize this Jesus. We recognize the Jesus that, that we knew growing up with. You see, it was too familiar because Jesus' identity was being confused with his role. See, identity is the fullness, all that he is, all that you are. It's your identity. It's called the name of the Lord, the character of God. You call upon the name of the Lord, all that God is. You pray in Jesus' name, everything that Jesus is for and doing and accomplishing, that's what you're praying in. Okay, so there's confidence when you know this is what Jesus is doing. And, and so there's this fullness, that's identity. But all the people grew up with Jesus only defined by his role. Was he big brother? When Judas was giving, um, uh, I don't know, when, when Jude was giving Joseph, okay, the brothers of Jesus, you know, when he'd eat all his food or he was giving him a wedgie and his, his tally or whatever they were doing as, as kids growing up, um, Jesus was maybe the peacemaker. And so that was the role. Big brother's going to sort it out. Or this is my son. This is how Mary. We don't read about Joseph here. So we don't know what the story is with him. But Mary was probably leaning on the eldest son, Jesus, quite a lot. And so that we see this at the wedding, you know, Jesus, you've got to sort this out. And so she's depended on him as a son, as a caregiver, perhaps. That was the role that she knew him as. He was known, perhaps, as the apprentice of Joseph, running errands for people and stuff as he's learning the family trade. And so it was a role versus errand boy, then apprentice, then journeyman. He was, he was defined by all of these roles, and all of them were true. All of them were real. All of them were intimate and necessary. But they weren't his identity. They weren't the whole story. And so this familiarity, where it was a strength, now became a huge liability. Isn't this the carpenter? They could only see him in terms of his value, what he provided, where he was in the social structure. A provider and a worker. Isn't this the brother of... And so now it's just, we all know what brothers do in families. We all have families. He's just like that. And then, isn't this Mary's son? You, you never, ever, ever, ever read anybody being called the son of a woman in uh, Jewish literature, ever. Because it's a patriarchal culture. It just is. You always go by the name of your father. If your father is deceased, you still go by the name of him. It should be Jesus ben Joseph. That's his full name. Jesus, son of Joseph. But they didn't say that. Why? Because they're turning the knife a little bit. They're saying, not only do we know who you really are, Jesus... But we know who you're pretending not to be, as they saw it. You see, the son of Mary is a, is a roundabout way of saying you're illegitimate. You're a bastard. You really, all these claims you're making, they're, they're, they don't count. 
because you're at the lowest rung of society. That's, that's the role. That's the undercurrent that, that has tagged you. And you can't be more than that, Jesus. We won't allow you. Isn't this Mary's son? It says that they took offense at what Jesus was doing. Jesus is laying out the truth. Jesus is showing God's love. Jesus is bringing life in its fullness. Jesus is bringing wholeness to relationships and minds and bodies. And they took offense. The word that's used is where we get the word scandal. Uh, it's, it's translated in the Bible as stumbling block. Uh, there's this verse in Isaiah, behold, I lay in Zion, a precious cornerstone. This is talking about Jesus. And in the ancient world, the cornerstone had to be the one perfect stone because the length, height, and, and breadth of a building where it's measured off of that one stone. So Jesus is the perfect model. The whole church is built upon him. That's what's going on here. But he flips it around. Peter flips it around. Remember um, Marcus Peter's story? Peter flips it around in his letter, First Peter, and he says, Jesus is that precious stone that we've been waiting for, that foundation upon which our lives are built. But guess what? It is also a stumbling block. And either you're going to build your life on a solid foundation or you're going to continually be falling and smashing and dashing yourself against this. Now, I'm not sure what happened, and um, I, I blame my mom in, 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 in utero for this because I can. Um, something happened with my mind where my brain does not map anything from about my knees down. Um, that normally you, you can close your eyes like this is, you know, this test. I'm just kidding. Um, you can close your eyes and you can know where parts of your body are. My brain doesn't know where the, this, it just doesn't know. I mean, and so I am continually discovering what a shin is, a device for finding furniture in the dark. It's like a divining rod. It's, it's scary. And knees. And I mean, seriously, it's, I've just got so many bruises. It's crazy because every corner of every piece of furniture, I am always, 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 always running up and hitting these things. Hitting the side of our bed. Hitting dressers. Hitting stairs. I can't, I've broken my toes three times since being here just by kicking concrete steps. I just do. That's sort of this, what's going on with people that have this stumbling block relationship with Jesus that it's a good thing and they see it it's a good thing it's a bed for sleep it's a dresser for storing things it's stairs to get somewhere these are good things but rather than standing upon them or sleeping upon them or using them as it's supposed to it's just running up against it all the time I see it I understand it but I just keep I keep hitting it and hitting up against it and being scandalized because they were confronted with who really gets to call the shots in life. Is it me or is it Jesus? Returning to the story. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives and in his own home. See, there's three, three white circles that, that are concentric here. We have his hometown, so everybody knew him, about 500 people. We have his extended family, his relatives, and now we have his own household. Prior to this, the last time we saw his family, Jesus was on the inside with the strangers. His family was on the outside. That was physically what was going on. And now we see relationally and emotionally, this is what had been going on all along. The longer we know someone, the easier it is for us to annoy them and vice versa. You know how to push people's buttons. Right? You only hurt the ones you love, right? Because you know, you know where, where the low blows are. And the longer we know someone, the more difficult it is to see them differently. Anybody ever take a long trip with a brother or sister? Backseat of a car? 
Was, was I the only one that did this with my sister? Mom, she's on my side. When, when did it become my side? Uh, and, and we, my sister and I, we would just, we knew how to push each other's buttons. We knew how to get the other one in trouble. We knew how to weasel. We just knew this. And, and it was hilarious when my sister got accepted to um, be an agent in the FBI. I couldn't see her as a federal agent. I could only see her as my kid's sister that, that we're just wrestling in the back seat of the car. That's who she is. This is what's going on here with Jesus. If you doubt this dynamic, Thanksgiving dinner's just around the corner, right? Um, there's an election you can talk about, maybe, or there's religion. I don't know. A prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives in his own home. He could not, could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Amazed. Okay, Mark states this more forcefully than the other gospel writers. The other writers say that he didn't do any miracles there. He only did a few miracles, like he chose not to. Um, you guys aren't getting it. You're not there yet. Um, I, sorry, it's just not going to happen. I choose not to do miracles here. I'm not going to. No. Mark states that he was unable to. His power was limited by the people. That's amazing because this is all-powerful God who self-limited himself in a body and and vulnerability and humility and weakness and who also limits his power. God's going to do his will. He will do his will no matter what. And he wants to do his will in us so he can work through us. He's going to work around us if we won't have it. And that's what's going on here. See, other, other stories were, were the gospel, the Mark in particular setting up what's going on. It says, Jesus was there. The power to heal was within him. The people were expecting. The people came for healing. The people knew he was, he was going to save them. That these components were all in place. Well, only two of them were in place here. The people were not expecting and quite, quite the opposite actually. Jesus' own family did not believe he was the Messiah. They did not believe he was the Son of God. It wasn't until after his death that we have evidence of only two of his brothers coming around. Maybe others did. We don't know how many sisters he had. Jesus had, there's at least seven in the family, seven kids in the family, maybe more. But with that menagerie of, of at least seven kids growing up in poverty in this backwater and relying on each other and leaning on each other and doing more life in, in a more intimate, raw way than most, with that experience, it did not help them in their walk with God. It insulated them. That they knew this one role of Jesus, this is how he came to me, this is who he is, and that's all he could be. The strength overused is a weakness. He was amazed at their unbelief. And this we see the humanity of God coming out here. Do we ever read about Jesus being astonished at the amount of sin in the world. No. It's kind of the mission, sort of why he came, right? He knew about it. Do we read about Jesus being astounded at the types or the ways in which people sin? No. doesn't give it a mention. Go and sin no more. Be free. The one thing that Jesus is amazed at is faith. Either those who have faith who shouldn't have it, or those who should have it and don't. The Roman centurion, the enemy, the butcher, had faith. I'm a man under, uh, I'm a man under orders and, and people under me with orders. I get it. I get authority. If you say it, it's so because you're God. He was amazed. I've never seen faith like him in all of Israel. 
Here's the opposite. The people that knew him more than anyone, closer than anyone, had more access to him than anyone, so they thought they did not believe. They could not see him any more than a brother, carpenter, neighbor, friend. How is it that they could be so resistant having such an intimate experience with Jesus? And here's the strange thing with this. Herod and Satan and the crowds, they all wanted the big miracle. They wanted God to be God beyond their categories. They wanted to walk across the swimming pool, throw yourself in the Temple Mount, do something big that's going to prove that you were God. And they had no problem with, with Jesus doing that. Healing and, and even the disciples. He's, what kind of God is this that, that commands the weather and he obeys and commands the demons and he's just there. They had no problem with God being God. But where they were having a problem was that God would be like us and too much like us and get us too closely. What is resistant is not a God that's too divine but too familiar, too understood, too close. What kind of God would humiliate himself for me, suffer for me? What kind of God would sit with me in my mess and be okay with ritually defiling himself that I could know his embrace? See, this is our tendency. We get this in the um, opening of John's gospel, talking about Jesus. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man, every person. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. God's fingerprints everywhere. We, we We don't get it. He came to his own, and those were his own, did not receive him. Okay, this is a tendency in our hearts, okay? Those who most know him, family, can keep him at arm's length. And here's the deal. In relationship with Christ, we have real legitimate experience, real legitimate hope, real legitimate power and engagement and encounter with a living God. That is true. That perhaps it was a crisis. Perhaps it's just we had our eyes open. Perhaps whatever the transaction was, our walk with Christ, when when it began, it began with a real person, a real experience, and that is a real role. And so maybe in our our walk in our relationship with God, he has been our savior. He has saved us from the messes we've created. He saved us from the messes other people's have. He saved us from what was beyond us. Maybe he's a comforter and a friend that all others have abandoned and Jesus is close and not left us as orphans and, and he's a comforter. Maybe he's the inscrutable God that always comes through at the 11th hour. That it's just, I'm praying, I'm doing my best. It it feels like I'm shouting in a concrete bucket, but I know God's going to answer the prayer. And and that's, that's been our experience. Maybe he's been the healer in your life. Relationships, bodies. Maybe he's been the provider in miraculous ways. and, And you've known and seen him that way. Whether it's the lifter of your head, whether it's the mender of your heart, whatever area of restoration, that is a real experience with a real person that is every bit just as true and real as what Jesus' family and everyone in Nazareth experienced with him. Here's the challenge, though. That is real, it is true, it is raw, but it is a role. And there is always so much more to God that he wants to grow into us. And what we tend to do is say, this is the Jesus I know, and this is the only the Jesus that I'm going to allow in my life. And we can take offense at God when he is stretching who he wants him to be to us. Because that is scary. That requires humiliation and surrender. 
I've just figured it out. I've walked so long with God and I know his word and this is the way it works and this is the way the kingdom is and this is how faith goes and how prayers and all of that. But we discover the longer we walk, the closer we come to the infinite of God, the more we know we don't know. And the more we're we're left with, this is the character of God. I, I know, I know there's more. The good news is not just information or an agreement. The good news is not behavior modification. The good news is not confirmation to doing what everybody else does in a community. We all have great examples of all of these things in the world do it much better. The good news is a person. The person of Jesus Christ who has come to rescue us, who's come to set us free. And who is all of these things and so much more. And the tendency is, have you ever been pulled from something dangerous and you're holding on to someone? You're holding on. You're not going to let go. And that is our tendency because it's real and it happened and we're grateful. But in doing so and and keeping this death grip on who Jesus is, that's all we allow him to be to us. He can only be our savior. He can only be our healer. He can only be the answer of prayers in this way. He can only be my encourager, my comforter. And we can take offense when God is stretching and challenging us. That he could be this kind of God. That he would want to work in these areas of my life. That he would want to expand my heart. David got it. Why did he meditate on the word? That you would enlarge in my heart. Because I will keep it just as small and tight and manageable as I can if left to my own devices. I want to control my life. And it's a scary thing to say, okay, God, do with it what you will. And so we just look for these handholds. It's enough when life starts to get too much. And this is who Jesus can be only. That's also why we need each other. All of us have very different, very legitimate, very real and necessary experiences with a living God. All of those are unique and form-fitting to us, but they're going to be very different expressions of the character and, and, and the grace of God that, that we need to see in each other and through each other as well. As I said at the beginning um, of communion, I, I don't know where your hearts are. I know where mine is. So last week's been a really, really, really brutal week for me. Um, just in, in dealing with uh, adjusting medications for depression, uh, other, other counseling, other things starting up, just trying to address things more deliberately. And the scary thing that I realize as a lot of the supports are ripped up, a lot of stability is just not there. A lot of the things that I used to rely on just aren't working. What really do I have? It's faith. When you're not holding on to anything else. And is it faith only in who I've allowed Jesus to be up to this point in my life. That was enough up to this point, but it's not going to be enough hereafter. I have to be willing to allow God to be who he is, God in my life, when I don't have the answers, when I don't have the stability, when I can't honestly say how it's going to shake out next week or even tomorrow sometimes. When I feel so numb and and incapable of some of the simplest things. Who is Jesus to me then? Because it's not based on my performance. It's not based on deliverables. It's not based on track record. It's not based on understanding. It's based on that real-time relationship. I believe Jesus went to his family, went to Nazareth, to his hometown. It wasn't the the returning victory parade. It, It wasn't simply just a rest stop along the way. But it was a continuing, and there's going to be many more of these, a continuing... Um, hand extended to his family saying, you know me this much, and it's great and it's wonderful, but there is so much more. 
Please be open-handed. I'd like to invite the worship band forward. And we're going to uh, have a time of reflective prayer and worship. It's the same song that we did in communion, and deliberately so. Because the tendency as well as I, when I start to hunker down, I think, well, we did that. We're planning a service. We want a time of reflection. We want a time of engagement with God, a time of just challenge with the word, all of that. But I could think, well, we've checked the box with communion. We checked the box with sitting and reflectively pondering, you know, what the work of God in, in our, our, our hearts. But now in light of this, specifically, let's do this. What are the areas of greatest strength and joy in our walk with Christ? What are the areas where we know him? We know this is who God is. This is how God has come through. This is what we see. And ask if, there, um, if we've been holding on to this, Jesus having to be this role and this role only too much. Where would God have us to let go? Where would God be bigger, more beautiful, more challenging? Where have we been stumbled by the word of God or the demands of God or the character of God or perhaps even the forgiveness and grace of God? And let's just reflect. If you want to worship and sing, that's great. If you want to pray, um, that's great as well. Let's let God always be bigger, always more magnificent in his grace.
Well, amen. What an awesome service together. Um, isn't it just such a blessing to be able to do church together? Yeah. Um, Bill? Oh, Bill's not here. So I just thought that was an awesome message. You guys appreciate our pastor? Really? Uh, you know, I'll be honest with you. Doing ministry is hard. Being on a church staff is hard. Um, it's awesome. Wouldn't trade it for the world. But I would just ask you to keep Bill and Mari in your prayers. Um, you know, it, as Bill said, it has been a hard week. I don't know how he pulls it off, to be honest. I'd probably just, I'd be, I don't know. But uh, I just love working with him. And I just ask you this week, lift him up in your prayers uh, that God would be his sustenance. Amen. Um, if you would like to know more about Bethel, I'm looking out and I'm seeing some people that uh, I don't know if I've even, I don't think I've met you. And that means you're pretty new. And so that means you might have questions about Bethel. And so we have a ministry called the Living Room right after church. Head over there, ask all the questions you need. We want to we wanna, uh, get to know you better. Also this morning, there's got to be some of you who need prayer. Uh, we like to, to uh, surround you with prayer. So if, if I could invite our prayer counselors forward at this time. Really, take all the time you need. Take advantage of this ministry over here. They'll be over there. Have uh, somebody lift your head up, so to speak, with you to the Lord. Um, anything else? No? I think that's it. Hey, we love you guys, and um, let's get to know Jesus more every day. Amen? Every day. Love you. Take care.